Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Pastor Talk Podcast. Good to have you with us. We hope that uh, today's discussion will be helpful. We hope there'll be some things in it that will be thought-provoking for you. We bite off a big chunk today as we think about the character David, a story that arcs through several books, uh, major implications in the life of Israel. Really, Michael, in lots of ways, a bigger-than-life character, a bigger-than-life story. Yeah, that's going to be a, a huge character for us to uh, to take on in our conversation today, Clint. But what's interesting, and I'd be interested just to start this conversation, as you're joining with us, I know that there's lots of different experiences of Scripture. Some here have really engaged in the Old Testament. Maybe you've read all of these stories about David some of you, maybe not. Maybe you learned the story of David and Goliath, and that's really your David story. Maybe you remember David and Bathsheba, uh, one of David's lowest points in his life and journey. But, you know, it's interesting because David is this pivotal biblical character. In the Old Testament, there's not many, if anyone, who gets more time, uh, textual stories about them told in the in the Bible than David. And yet there's just this complicated, nuanced kind of depiction of who he is. So in all of the characters we talked about this far, there's just so much content for David. We'll never be able to get to all of it. There's these little stories that throw nuances and different colors and shades on David's life and character. And that needs said, this is not going to be an exhaustive conversation about who David was, but regardless of whether you know a lot of the David stories or not many of the David stories, there is so much humanity in David, there's going to be something that all of us can relate to in today's conversation. Yeah, 100%, Michael. And interestingly enough, the scripture both helps us and hurts us in that I think it gives us David from several perspectives, the, the, the faith life of David, the, the monarch, the ruling life as king, um, probably maybe a, a life aspect that people are less familiar with, this part of his story where he's an outstanding military leader, kind of a, a guerrilla fighter, just um, a, a, a warrior, a tremendous warrior. Then we also have the aspects of, of David's personal life as a father and late in the story as things unravel. And it, it can be very difficult to look through those various lenses, ruler, statesman, warrior, man of faith, and to try and balance all of them. And I think it's a helpful conversation in that we get to look at a character who is perhaps the most multifaceted, arguably, in the Old Testament. Yeah, I think it would be easy for us to come to David with some swift judgments about ways that he gets it right and gets it wrong, sort of this metric that we've brought to these conversations about the real people of faith. I would really try to advise us to not do that as we have this conversation with one another and with the, the text, because Clint just take, for instance, the idea of leadership. You could say on one hand that David's a great leader. You looked especially to some of these military campaigns that he ran, and the text makes it clear he was brilliant. Then you look at other places of leadership, some major stuff breaks down in administrative leadership of the kingdom of Israel. This thing that he really pushes forward towards the end of his life, we just see schisming. And so you would point to that as an example of some lack of leadership. So I think this is where the scripture is just so helpful, is it's not out to paint one picture of a person. It is trying to lift up these very discordant voices. And anyone who has spent some time being self-reflective, Clint, knows that that's in all of us. Yeah. And I'll, we will circle back around to this because I think we see it so clearly in David, Michael. But here is a character in some moments shines because of his traits and in other moments falls short because of the very same traits. You know, in many instances, our strengths can also be our weaknesses. And I think David is a wonderful example of that. So maybe before we jump into the stories, we could 
try to set a, an overarching idea of some of those traits. What are the things that seem to be true throughout these various narratives of David in regard to his personality? I, I would say to start with, he's brash or impulsive. I mean, we're going to right away in the Goliath story, we see this young man who goes to a camp full of warriors and says, what, nobody will fight that guy? I'll do it. You know, he, he tends to... He tends to leap first and look second. Yeah, another word. I, in fact, the first word that came to mind, Clint, was brash. So I want to add yes. But there's a fine line, isn't there, between brash, impulsive, and courageous. He's also courageous. I yeah. mean, there are moments when David goes head first, and he, it, in those moments, embodies the best of even being king, right? The fact that I'm not going to ask any of my men to do something I'm not willing to do. Now, we're going to see that reversed as well. But I do think uh, he does have, in those words, brash and impulsive, he does have this sort of thing, act first, think later. But he does also have a self-sacrificial side of him where he's willing to put his life on the line for those he cares about. Yeah, and then later we'll see him jump into a situation where I'd have to say because of his impulsivity, it leads him to cowardice. Yes. Instead of facing the truth of his actions, he has to try and hide them. And so that impulsivity, I think we see the best of it in his story, and we see the worst of it. A second thing I might point to, and th this is a little more difficult to pin down in the story, but it appears to me we have in David a character who is very charismatic. Mm -hmm. He draws others to himself. We're told that he's handsome. We're told that he's he's ruddy in appearance. You know, he looks like a king. He he is a ruler. Um, he grows into that a little bit. Maybe Samuel doesn't recognize it right away. But we we see a person who others seem to react to. He's noticeable. Let's say that. I think you've also got to trace through his story. He's committed. He's devoted. Might be the right word. David does not always get things right, and yet David is quick to return to God to offer confession, to offer thanksgiving, to offer praise. I mean, let's not pass by the fact that the Psalms are almost exclusively attributed to David's writing. So, let, let's not forget that this is a man who scripturally we are, we are encouraged to know was just this wellspring of lament, of joy, of confession. So he was very devoted to his understanding of faith and God's presence with him, and, and that was a theme throughout his life. Yeah, and even in, in those things, Michael, I think we could read David again, particularly in those warrior texts, and forget that this is a man with an amazing ability to apparently at least connect with his own emotions. Yeah. He he plays a musical instrument, he writes music, he he writes poetic lyrics. I mean, he's he's not uh he's not just some kind of gorilla out there, right. you know, fighting battles. There, there's a depth to him and at his best that depth is always anchored in who he understands himself to be before God. He seems maybe until the very end of his story, and maybe never, to have forgotten that God has given him so mm -hmm. much of what he experiences. And he seems, at his best, as we all are, genuinely grateful and affected, deeply affected by it. Yeah, and in some ways, the beginning of his story, Clint, said great point to turn there. I mean, David was not in the farm team of Israel kings, right? I mean, there was no sense in which David was sort of primed and, and cut for that job. What we actually have is the people of Israel, and I think this context matters a little bit here, Clint, you got to know that really in the Old Testament, a, a king for the nation of Israel is really cast as an accommodation, or to say it differently, God concedes to the people that they can have a king. The people are just begging. They want to be like the nations around them. Uh, and God would much rather it that they would just trust God to be their leader. And that is not a thing that the people accept. So 
So God concedes to a king. Saul is chosen as a king, and there's this long and tumultuous relationship that intertwines Saul and David, and, and we won't have time for all of that. But it's worth noting here that this is early even in the idea of monarchy for the people of Israel, really, with a rough transition between Saul and David. And so David gets chosen out of this lot of brothers. Samuel, the, the prophet, gets told by God, it, I, there's this king. By the way, Saul is king when this happens. Hey, I have the next king of Israel waiting. You're going to go find him. Uh, you need to go out and you're going to find him in Jesse's house. So Samuel comes out and we have this really interesting selection story that happens at the beginning here. Yeah, and then David and Saul intertwine, and there's this moment where David is playing the lyre and that soothes Saul. And then we really kind of, I think, pick up the pace of this story, Michael, when we get to David and Goliath. Right. Um, so, and, and again, while this is a story about David, in the background of this story, really many places in the foreground of this story, this is ultimately a story about God. And who else decides I'll take the youngest son of a shepherd family, and that's the guy, that's the next king. And so we begin to see what God sees in David as we move to the David and Goliath story. You all know that, or at least know enough of it to, to work our way through it. David shows up at the camp. He starts asking around. His brothers scold him. But, but interesting, David is also a man of ambition. Mm -hmm. uh, his question is, what will be done for the person who fights Goliath? And he sounds, out, sounds like there's a pretty good reward. He says, I'll do it. Um, there's a lot of neat things in this story, Michael, but I think my favorite is that moment where David is fitted with the very king's armor, the best mm -hmm. armor in the camp, and then he leaves it beside and he says, you know, God has always been with me. God has helped me. This stuff is hindering me. And, and that incredible moment where he takes the trappings of, of security and protection and he just lays them in the dirt to let God be his protection. And, and whatever else we can say about David, in that moment, he is such a, a stunning example to the rest of us who believe that it is the things of life that sort of protect us and define us. And in David's willingness to drop those things by the river and go meet Goliath, we see a tremendous sermon. Absolutely. I think that this is a fascinating story, Clint. And it's fascinating to me, having young kids, I've read a whole lot of beginner's Bibles. I mean, I cannot tell you the number of different versions of this story I've read. And this is a thing that stuck out to me is there are not many stories that inc get included in children's Bibles that involve people being killed. And this is in every children's Bible. And it has made me wonder, why is that? And I think one of the reasons is, first of all, this story is so out of the ordinary. It is just one of those scriptural stories that, that just strikes you when you hear it. But I think another thing is, here you have a boy, a child, performing as the king should have done, right? And that is, I think, fundamentally, that is the good news that gets told to kids in the retellings of, of this is that God can use young people. And I think that that's one way in which this story is just amazingly powerful because it reminds us that even though we tell this as David and Goliath, it's really God winning, over Goliath. And that's the whole point is that mm -hmm. God chooses to act in David's life in a way that no child could be expected to pull off on their own. Yeah. In fact, I've, I've preached this text and one of the things I've been compelled to say is that when you read this text outside the lens of faith, it looks like David is the underdog. Mm. But when you understand the text, it's Goliath who never had a chance right. because he's not fighting David. He's fighting the living God. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a wonderful... And David alone remembers that. In, in the camp, David is the one who says, how dare this Philistine defy the Lord? Mm -hmm. And it, it's this wonderful story about a, a young man who remembers what all of the other supposedly brave and faithful men have forgotten, that strength ultimately isn't their ability, 
but God's presence. And um, David's story could not, I, I think literally could not get off to a better start. No, I, in this one story, we see Saul for the king that he is. We see David for the characteristics that he has. And we see God working in the way that God said he was going to to Samuel. This is literally, I, there's a reason why David is, of, is the best king of Israel. I mean, this is the best story that you could have. Yeah, and then we get David sort of moving into that circle of the royal family. And right. it it happens in two ways, one positive and one negative, I would say. On the positive side, David and Saul's son, Jonathan, form this incredible connection. They become mm-hmm. um, the the very best of friends, that there is a... There's a bond between them that is amazing, um, incredible. In fact, it's made, there have been times that it's made people uncomfortable the way that they speak of one another. But on the negative side, there is a growing tension between David and Saul as Saul gets increasingly jealous. People, uh, as David's reputation grows and people celebrate what he's doing, Saul begins to feel um, sidelined. And in fact, even uh, ra- in fits of rage, I think at least once, maybe twice, I think, lashes out trying to kill David. Yeah, as that story goes on, Clint, we, we begin to learn that really Saul is exerting anger at David that is misplaced anger at God because God has moved this process of David taking the kingship. And the text is clear that Saul isn't going to hold on to it. And so it ends for Saul on the battlefield. um, And David lives into his own gifts as a warrior and really it pushes forward in his story. Yeah. And so, again, this is one of those sections we probably won't be able to spend a lot of time in. It's several chapters of the kind of David's rise and Saul's decline. And the and David has the opportunity to um, exact vengeance on Saul. Yeah. He doesn't. He's merciful. And then, in fact, when he finds out that someone has killed Saul, he has that man killed because right. a, as a enforcer of the the order of the monarchy, that person has committed a crime, which has always seemed to me a strange story because it benefited David so much. And at that time, David and Saul were essentially in open conflict. Yeah. And yet, D- David does this thing where he kind of ties up the ends. And I don't know if that's a political thing or if that's a, a character thing, but it's a strange story. Then, then we move really into the sphere of David's um, David's work as king, David's office as king, and leadership. Again, I, these you know these stories they drag on a little bit with some of the administrative work that David has to do, but um, probably I would think in the context of what most of us would need to understand. David's move of the capital from Judah to Jerusalem is of significant importance in the scope of the story. Not not only for David personally, though it's it's an interesting story and we'll unpack it a little bit, but nationally, this is an important moment, but not an easy moment. No, well, David is doing what any leader in his position would find an impossible task, and that's to unite disparate people with differing ideas and differing values. I mean, you've got the 12 tribes as we know them going back historically, but you have even more than that. You have these alliances with foreign nations. You have the outstanding hostilities that he inherits from Saul's time in leadership. David is managing a lot of different opposing fronts, and he's doing that in the 
with the tools of that day, Clint. Not all of those are military. Some of those are marriages. He's trying to strike the right balance of marrying the right people and getting the right alliances out of that. And some of that is um, religious. He's going to move the ark uh, after he moves the city of Jerusalem. That's a significant sort of religious movement. Um, he's trying to make the monarchy sustainable. I mean, really, the, the people of Israel didn't get it right administratively with Saul. They never really had uh, wind behind them, and David is trying to get them there, and it's tough work. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you'd have to argue that David brings to the throne a much larger vision mm-hmm. than did Saul. And David sees that if the capital could be relocated to Jerusalem, which is more central, has a better sense of the northern tribes and the southern tribes, just a, a better flow in terms of a place from which to rule and a city to make central. And so militarily, he does the work. As a statesman, he does the work. What's very interesting, I think, is he also does some of that work almost as a priest. Mm -hmm. He understands that really what needs to happen is that the Ark of the Covenant needs to be there. In fact, he offers to build a temple. God says, no, uh, you're a warrior, not a builder and another one will build the temple. But he, there's this wonderful story. And here in which I think maybe is the first major story that I can think of in the David cycle, Michael, where David, <laughs> he gets a lesson. Mm-hmm. He, his, his impulsivity and his natural tendency to jump first get him in a little trouble. So what happens is... He, he takes the Ark of the Covenant and he has it moved, but he doesn't have it moved the way that it's supposed to be moved, which is carried on poles. He puts it on a cart. He, mm-hmm. he doesn't really give it the respect, and it ends up being a disaster. Someone touches the Ark, a man named Uzzah. Right. That man dies. Well, that, that really squashes kind of the excitement <laughs> of a parade, and David has to send the Ark over halfway along the route, and it just sticks kind of sticks it in a farmhouse, in a barn almost, um, and then goes back and sulks for a while. Well, yeah, the Bible sometimes can say these things in a way that you could never summarize. It just says, David was afraid of the Lord that day. <laughs> That's the understatement of the century. Yeah. You watch a guy drop dead because of a choice that you made to put on the cart. The guy's trying to keep it up there, and uh, yeah, it's, it's worth noting that David is he's trying to lead the people forward, and yet he's also willing to cut corners. And if we know anything about the God of Israel, we know that God is not interested in corner cutting. God is interested in you fulfilling the full responsibilities and expectations, and that was not something that David did in this instance. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that David learns a very hard lesson being that when you treat God as a political tool, mm-hmm. you wish you hadn't. Now, nevertheless, he tries again, this time more respectful. I love the second version of the story. I think it says that they took six steps, and then they stopped and worshiped. And then, you know, you kind of imagine nobody wanted to be on the, yeah. the, the carrying the ark job. But as David comes into Jerusalem, again, I, there's this character story that we see, and David, the excitement, and keep in mind, this is the king of Israel, and he's so caught up in this moment that it says he danced, and he was basically wearing kind of an undercloth. It says he he lost his robe or took off his robe, and he danced, and I think I have it right, Michael, it says he danced with all his might before the Lord. He simply, he loses himself in this moment of celebration, of pure joy, and I, I think it's, it's hard. There are different ways you could read this, but I don't read this. Maybe you have a different opinion. I don't read this as political. In other words, I don't think he does it because people are watching him. I think he's genuinely swept up in the joy of, of this moment, this accomplishment, this fulfillment of what he's been trying to do. And, and I think he simply genuinely is overcome with it and dances. This is one of the things about the Bible that I just find so incredible, Clint, is 
these unflattering stories that get told. And I, I really mean that. If you read in, this is 2 Samuel 6 is where this story is, and I'm looking here at verse 21. I mean, his wife who watches this comes to him and says, why in the world did you embarrass yourself in front of all of the people? <laughs> I mean, it was she very clearly perceived it as being a shameful act of somebody who couldn't keep his clothes on. And, you know, Clint, I think what's fascinating about this is David was king of Israel. He had aspirations to do more than any king of Israel had ever done, really to create a kingdom that had not yet, prior to that time, not even existed. And yet, he's a guy who's not full of himself enough to be willing to dance before the Lord, to get caught up in worship, to lose himself, and to not be thinking about what the sub what the subjects might be thinking, right? The people of Israel might be thinking. And I think that's a beautiful thing to hold in tension. A man who very clearly driven by authority, power, by continuing to administrate as a king, and yet also someone who believes in this relationship with the living God, who gets swept away in a moment of worship and ecstasy. These two things are maybe they would to most of us be assumed to be opposing, but they're held in tension here in the text. Yeah, and certainly for Presbyterians who are probably not known for our losing ourselves in dancing. We don't often <laughs> lose ourselves in the pews. Yeah, that's fair. It's likely that maybe we live more on one side of the, that fence than the other, but I, I do think we see in David that moment of, of getting swept up in joy, and I read it as genuine, and I think it's, an, uh, it's a very interesting text. You know, his wife, who, by the way, is Saul's daughter, is one of two two people that I can think of who call David to account. And we'll see the other one here in a moment, but it's very interesting because to her, he responds without embarrassment, without accountability, saying, look, I danced before God and I have no apologies to make. In the second time that he's confronted, uh, it pulls the rug out from him. It guts him and he feels the weight of it. So um, again, I think one of the marks of a faithful leader is that they can hear criticism mm -hmm. when it's valid, mm -hmm. and it, we can we can maybe revisit that. That's well but said. there there are those two moments. So the next major arc of the story, Michael, I suspect again people are going to be familiar with this: yep. David and Bathsheba. And there are lots of ways to read this story, and lots of people from different perspectives put different spins on it. In in regard to the David portion of the story, let's let's start with this. The the chapter opens in the spring of the year when the kings go to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and he remained in Jerusalem. So it's the text subtle way of saying when most kings go with their armies he stayed behind. Yeah. And staying behind, he's looking around one day, he sees a woman, she's on the roof, which isn't as strange as it sounds because there was often a bathing tub um, so that water would warm up during the day. And his and since almost no one would have lived in a building with more than right. one story, that's not a problem. David can see. And he sees this woman and he has her brought. And Bathsheba gets a, a tough reputation at times. There's really nothing in the story that indicates she had anything to do with it. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. Lots of speculation. But what we do know is that David, as the king, abuses his authority. Absolutely. At, at, at the very least, in having a married woman come to the castle where they have an affair, what part she plays in it initially is lost to us. But David is certainly guilty. And um, the, the the sort of soap opera moment, he gets word that she's pregnant. And by the way, her husband serves in the army. He's not there. He, uh, let's make that clear. Her husband's doing the work yes. that the text begins by saying that David should have been doing, yeah. right? So that's that's not a very cleverly hidden insult. David 
does find out that Bathsheba is pregnant. He is terrified of what that means because he has not only abused his authority, uh, but he's also done this against a a very uh, respected man in his own military. So he comes up with this sort of sly plan. This is the kind of thing that you expect to see in a movie almost, right? He uh, thinks, okay, I need to get him back here. He's going to come to the palace. I'm going to get him drunk. I'm going to send him home to his wife. Um, He's going to have relations with her. Uh, and then he's going to just assume it's his child and yeah. uh, problem solved. Nice and tidy little bow, except that's not how the story goes. No. Um, so Uriah is an interesting character. He he comes back. He meets with David. He goes home, but he doesn't go into his house. He sleeps right on the doorstep, the threshold. And David says, what are you doing? Your, your wife's home. You get in there, you know, and Uriah says, I won't do that. Again, this is the backdrop of, right. of David not going to war. Uriah says, while my comrades are out on the battlefield, I will not have pleasure and warmth and meals in the comfort of my home. Far be it from me. Right. And so he has this moment of integrity and honor, which only highlights is lacking in David in these moments. So now it gets worse. Yeah, right. David has this secret. It's gotten bigger, and it it goes from bad to worse. Yep. So you probably know this story. David is now getting desperate, and he takes the next more def- desperate step, and he essentially, uh, through military means, plots to have Uriah killed. He actually sends the orders for Uriah's death with Uriah, ironically, onto the battlefield. He literally carries with him his death sentence. And um, the uh, the general, uh, Joab, right, yep. um, he complies with those orders, and it results in Uriah's death. And it's at that point, then, that David, the way is clear for him to take Bathsheba into his Yeah, house. moves Bathsheba in. She goes through the period of mourning. Who's going to, you know, fuss over few weeks either way, mm-hmm. and especially when the king's involved, and David's thinking, dodge the bullet. I I had to manage this problem. That's too bad, but we're okay now. It's, it's all under the rug. And then there's a prophet named Nathan. He comes and he confronts David. You can read that in chapter 12 if you want, but the short version is that um, he tells David a story. David is outraged by the story, and then Nathan springs the trap on him and says, well, you're the man the story's about, and you're guilty. And um, it just, it, it floors David. Uh, it, it crushes him that, you know, and that's, that's often the case, right, Michael? We hide a secret, and so oh. much energy goes into hiding it that when it's out, there's all I don't sometimes there's relief, but all of those things we've been denying, all of the wrongness that we've been trying to push off, it all lands at once and it just nearly destroys David. If you want to read the response, you can check out Psalm 51. That's traditionally thought to have been a writing that David did after this moment. And uh, and and it becomes a season of repentance. David. It, it does. It also becomes a sea change moment in his life. We really should not understate. This prophet says, uh, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me. Speaking for the Lord here. Uh, Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house. I- immediately following this, uh, David does express uh, just unbelievable, in, almost inconsolable grief and he seeks to to be able to um, confess what he has done, but this is never this mark is never going to leave David's story from this point on. In many ways, there's pre Bathsheba and post Bathsheba, and post this time, we're going to see the, this internal affairs of David's life begin to schism from here on out. Yeah, and if you read this story, this is chapter twelve of Second Samuel. I will warn you, there's a very troubling part of the text where. As a punishment for David's act, this child doesn't survive. And there's no easy way around that mm-hmm. um, in the story that it, it seems like an innocent pays 
the price of David's sin. And I do think that that's part of the lesson. I do think that's part of the intention here, Michael. Also, there's simply no way in the context of the story that a child of sin and adultery and murder is going to be the firstborn heir Mm -hmm. to the king. And uh, there's just, there's no way to make that comfortable as a reader, but it is a, it is a painful part of the story. And the text ties it directly to David's actions. So to your point, not only is there pain and suffering through his family life coming down the road, it, it happens immediately. It, it begins right away. And so the next son born to David is Solomon, uh, and this is Bathsheba's child again. And so Solomon, as you may know, will go on to be the king, but he's not the only son. There are um, a couple of others, one in particular named Absalom. And here, as we move toward the latter part of David's story, Michael, we really see some of this fracturing within the family come to the surface. And what it does in a family context, because of David being the king, it does also in a national context. Yeah, 100%. This is, in many ways, the struggle that every monarch is working to overcome, right? How do you transfer power to the next generation in a way that is sustainable for the kingdom? And as we know throughout history, right, that transfer of powership is a very delicate process. And often when you have someone who moves the kingdom forward into uncharted territory, that first transfer is particularly difficult because David is, you mentioned it earlier in our conversation, he's a charismatic individual. He has lots of gifts that he brings to the table that the children may not. And Absalom is really cast as an individual driven by rage and anger. There's, there is some sense in here that of reconciling and moving the, the kingdom forward, but at least as I read his character, Clint, there is a lot of pent-up anger being expressed throughout this story, and it, it begins to sort of move and shape as Absalom tries to take over the throne from David. In fact, David is ejected from Jerusalem, or J- David leaves Jerusalem in the midst of this infighting. Um, it, it becomes a, a, a hotbed, and there's, a, there's some questions, I think, sort of subtly thrown into the text. Is the kingdom going to make this transition? Yeah, Absalom... Is it a stretch to say harbor some hatred toward David? There's an incident involving a daughter of David who is raped, and David, for kind of semi-political, semi-family relationships, doesn't punish the, mm-hmm. the perpetrator of that rape. And Absalom, I think, never forgives David no. for that. And that animosity grows, that seed um, bears fruit, and he he essentially, he revolts and tries to take the throne, and father and son go to war. And for Absalom's part, he's committed to win. For David's part, he's, he's conflicted, because mm-hmm. while he certainly doesn't want to lose the throne and, and he does want to defend the nation... He doesn't want to attack his son, and and there's a poignant moment where, from the text perspective, David chooses his son over what's best for Israel. And really, in that moment, probably I would say, even even in spite of the Bathsheba stuff, I would argue that in the text, that seems to be the low point of of his reign. Yeah, in many ways, you could see that as the moment when the strands most come untied. I mean, fundamentally, the that promise or that threat or that prophecy that Nathan offered becomes lived out. And, um, you know, interestingly, uh, you're going to see later some of those same strands in Solomon, David's next son. You're going to see... The, the same kind of unraveling happening. So 
you have the, the sins of one generation in some ways passing on to the generations that follow. Yeah, and there is a moment at the end, Absalom is defeated, and David mourns, and his generals and his military people yeah. uh, feel, they feel betrayed right. because he's, he's more sad over the death of an enemy than he is um, happy, I guess, ab- about their work and about victory and about securing the nation of Israel. And it's, it's not the moment David goes out on, which is good, but I do think it's the low point of the moment. Now, in terms of the, the very end of the story, how David is remembered, um, if you read the book of Second Samuel, the ending is all praise. It's songs about David's greatness, about the men that he fought with, uh, about the ones that he conquered, about his prowess as a warrior. Uh, all in all, for all the ups and downs of David's life, Michael, I, I think Scripture is largely undetoured in lifting David up mm-hmm. as a great hero in the faith. Yes. And quite frankly, it does so without apologizing. It doesn't apologize for David's actions. It, uh, let me say that differently. Scripture is not interested in telling the parts where David got wrong and then massaging them to make it seem like that was the only choice he had or he acted in wisdom and figured it out. Some No, Scripture is, is just laying David out for the person who he was. And it is in that that you can see really the writers of Scripture, their affection for David. And I think fundamentally where we start this conversation and where it's fitting, I think, for us to come to as we start thinking about these larger themes, Clint, is that fundamentally David is one of those uh, examples par excellence of where your strengths are simultaneously your weaknesses. The thing that drives you forward and makes you effective is simultaneously your kryptonite and the thing that has the ability to destroy you. And the thing that I think makes David such an admirable character is that even though he was a fully human person with both strengths and weaknesses, he did so with a honest, heartfelt, sincere devotion to God. Whether he got it right or got it wrong, he praised God and he confessed his wrongdoing and, and he stayed connected to the one who he believed called him. Yeah, that, I think maybe two snippets to put that in context, Michael. The 22nd chapter is entirely a song of David's thanksgiving. And then there's another brief psalm of praise that is recorded in the 23rd chapter of 2 Samuel as David's last words. And so the the idea that this, this person goes out with this song of praise, this song of thanksgiving that is, well, what here, 53 verses, mm-hmm. 51 verses, excuse me. And that that's ultimately David's last word is, is thanksgiving and praise. And there's another moment back in that Bathsheba te- text where the child born to Bathsheba after their adultery is sick, and David fasts, and he mm-hmm. wears sackcloth, and people begin to worry about him that he may be crazy. And then they worry even more when the, the child dies, and David goes and showers up and cleans up and comes back, and, and now he seems normal, and they say, what happened? And he says, I thought that God might listen, but now that the child has died, what more could I do? And mm-hmm. again, that's a hard text for us to read, but for, for David, it's a moment of acceptance. God has acted, and we live with it, that, that even this thing... There's not anger from David. He accepts the fault of it, and he says, God made a choice, and there's nothing I can do about it, and continues to be able to praise God later in his life, which those who have been through deep, painful valleys 
know that these kind of songs of thanksgiving are hard-won trophies. Right. I think you can really put David maybe into focus if you recognize how many themes he combines that we've Mm -hmm. already seen. I think like characters like Jacob and Esau are a really strong example of this idea of the family that's in conflict. You have someone like Joshua, who's a military general, who does what God calls them to do. He's faithful. He's militarily uh, able to move the people forward. David combines all of that. David has many of these different aspects, skill sets. And yet, Clint, wouldn't you have to say, the guy who so much of the Psalms are attributed to, you also have to factor, he in many ways... I don't know if I, I I maybe need to think through this more. I, in many ways, he you have Moses who stands between God and the people. Really, in many ways, David is the next person in that line to bear all of that in the same way that Moses did. I mean, he he does in many ways with the ark coming back to Jerusalem, sort of stand in that intermediary way. Yeah, I, would, I think that's fair, Michael. And and I believe there's a line somewhere in this story where it says that David is a man after God's own heart. Right. And one of the things I appreciate about the David story you, you alluded to a moment ago is we are not forced in this corner to try and make David one thing or the other. I, I very much appreciate that the Scripture leaves for us the best moments and the worst moments to somehow reconcile ourselves and doesn't try to clean one up. It doesn't make him all bad. It doesn't make him all good. It makes him human. And in some cases, human bigger than life, but he's the king. And we have this narrative in which we're we're not forced into this false place of trying to either make him perfect or say that he's a scoundrel that somehow gets lucky and gets to rule. He he is both a talented, brilliant, insightful, emotional, wonderful man and a man who did horrific things when they served him mm-hmm. because he had the power to do so. And I, I like that the Bible asks us to deal with both of those, and the history of David asks us to deal with both. I, I think that's that feels human to me. And I think that's where this text turns towards us. Realistically, far too many of us, I think, walk around thinking that Christianity is displaying a certain set of ideas that we've accumulated of what a Christian is, as if a perfect Christian life is one in which we always look consistently perfect to the world. David blows that up. I mean, David is the guy who dances in Jerusalem half naked, right? But he does so in devotion to God. I think Jesus's words to the Pharisees help us here, right? That he he accused them of being whitewashed tombs. The idea that they, they look good on the outside, but on the inside they were empty. Realistically, we all know of our human frailty. We all know that our story is filled with moments where we got it right, moments where we got it wrong, moments where we could do nothing but thank God for the blessings of that day. And all of us can point to a time when all that we had were words of mourning and grief and sadness, or uh, maybe put differently, we had other moments where there's moments where we got it wrong, and the only thing we could say or do is confess the guilt of that. And friends, if that is you and everyone who's with us today, we find ourselves somewhere in that. The good news of David's story is that God is right there with you in your journey, that that God is ready to accept your confession and to, and to give you grace. God is willing to receive your praise and to continue to lead you forward in your life. So instead of trying to fashion ourselves as people of faith into the mold of what we think that should look like, I think we would all be helped to simply uh, recognize the truth of who we are and in that allow God to lead us forward. Yeah, and I I find I find this true. It, it's a bias of mine, and I want to confess that, but I think we see in David uh, an example of it. 
I'm struck in David's story by the reality that our strengths are so often also our weaknesses. And that the very things that made David great in his moments of faith led him to his downfall in the moments where he turned to self instead of God. That the same man who steps out on the battlefield with five rocks and a sling against the most feared warrior of his day sees a woman on a rooftop and is feeling restless and, and chases the wrong path. That the same man who writes Psalm 51, have mercy upon me, God, for I see my iniquity, writes Psalm 23 in the shadow of the valley of death. And, and maybe no greater tribute could be given to David than to say if you read the Psalms that are attributed to him, they span the entirety <laughs> yeah. of one's experiences in life and in faith. And ultimately, I think it makes him a fascinating character from which we can learn so much. And that's not to excuse what he did. It, it's just simply to say, I think in David, again, we see a person who is in his best moments led by God and in his worst led by self to places that cost him dearly. And I I hate to make this sound like a broken record as you've been joining with us in these conversations, but fundamentally, that's because this is God's story. It's God's story and David gets some time in it. And fundamentally, that's true of us, that we are living in God's story and we get a little bit of time in it. And we're invited to give our devotion to God in this time and to let God work in our stories. Yeah, I think it's helpful. Way many, many years ago, way back, I read something to the effect of that the Bible is the biography of God and don't get caught up in the other characters. Yeah, All of the other characters matter, matter, but when you look at start to finish what the Bible is trying to tell us, it's God, it's exactly that, Michael, as you said, it's the story of God. Well, friends, we're grateful that you've continued to join us as we've explored these characters in, uh, as we go throughout. Uh, we hope that you found something valuable here today, as we always uh, invite you to do so, especially if you're joining us like on Facebook. You know, sharing this video helps other people uh, find it. If you're on iTunes, uh, giving it a rating, uh, that really helps us a lot. Uh, you can sign up for email uh, reminders of when this is sent out. So if that's of interest to you, you can find that link on our homepage, fpcspiritlight.org. There's also links in the description here. But uh, grateful that you found this conversation. We'd love for, to have you share it with others, and we look forward to continuing next week. Yeah, and just to invite you to continue the conversation, if we spark something, if there's a question, if there's interest, if there's something that didn't make sense, post it in a comment on Facebook or email it to us, and we'll do our best to circle back around and address it with you. Thanks, everybody. Take care.